Exactly, see? <laughs> we know, James. If you are new to Element, welcome. There are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. And on the inside, on the left, you're going to get a half page that reflects on what we talk about today. On the right side, you're going to get some questions that you can talk with your family, your friends, your gospel community about to reflect on all that we talk about today. On the back side, you get the verses that we're going through. Underneath that, there is this question that says, I can apply this lesson to my life in these ways. And maybe as you walk through those questions, you can start to think about that. How do I apply this to my life in a way that honors Christ? Also, in a way that as Andrew grows up, he will see us live and love Jesus. Underneath that, there's a space to write down your notes. If you have a smart device, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on more and then events in Uversion. We will come up by GPS in your smart device and you will get sermon notes, verses, questions, everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Element. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? And this is James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, and it says this, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who trust you in the midst of all of life's pursuits, no matter what situation that we find ourselves in, that we would come to the place that we would understand the grace of our salvation that is found in you, and that we would then live out our lives in ways that glorify you in all things. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are going through the book of James, obviously. This is week three in that. If you have a Bible, you can open to James chapter 1. It's on page 654 if you have an element Bible. And James is most likely one of the, if not the earliest New Testament book ever written. And what you see is how they're taking all the things that they grew up with understanding in Judaism and then understanding the fulfillment of that in the person of Jesus. And James, as he walks through these things, helps us to understand that mostly through the ways that trials affect our lives. As a matter of fact, you see this each step all the way through the first chapter, and it really reflects through the rest of the book. It comes out of this understanding that trials bring wisdom, and we're to have patient endurance in the midst of it. And even today, he's going to use this word boasting. But our boasting isn't in what we have. Our boasting in what is what God has done to rescue us and bring us to himself, even through all of those trials. And some people ask, but if God is so good, why do we even have trials. Why are things difficult in our lives if God actually loves us? And we've talked about this on multiple occasions, and I can really tell what kind of books I'm reading when I'm writing messages, because I think the next few weeks I have all these Tim Keller quotes, so I must have read one of his books. But anyway, uh, these are two things that he says, which are things we have said before. First off is this, trials are inevitable. Trials in our lives are inevitable. The first few verses of James remind us of this. James 1 verse 2, consider, count it old joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. What that means is that anything in the world that can happen, no matter how much faith we think we have, can also happen to a person who follows Jesus. We must not ever be a people who think that simply because we love or live for Jesus that certain things can't actually come into our lives. God has no obligation to keep any person, even one who follows him, from suffering. But what we understand in our trials, though, is that God always has a purpose. 
that God is working and bringing about his glory and our good no matter what we go through. And sometimes there is this bizarre belief in Christians that nothing really bad can ever happen to us. And, and we're mistaken in that. I think about who is our redeemer. Jesus Christ, son of God, lived in step with the Holy Spirit. God said, this is my son with who I am well pleased. And he suffered like no other person has ever suffered who have walked on the face of this earth. He suffers injustice on the part of the authorities with the trial that was a sham. He suffers relationally as he's abandoned by those who say they love him the most. He is isolated and alone on the cross. Our sin is laid upon him. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is not a thing in this world that a person could suffer that Jesus did not suffer. And some people say, oh, well, well, that's Jesus. I'm not Jesus. And I always think, right, exactly, right, right. God or the universe, whatever you want to say, does not owe you a better life than Jesus. No, no. And so what we're doing is we're seeing what God actually does in his providence and grace because yes, we have trials, but trials can then bring wisdom. And that's the point because those trials actually make us see it's not the universe. It is God himself that works in our lives to draw us to who he is. And that is one of the main purposes of trials. And referring to trials, James says, James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. God himself gives us wisdom in the midst of our trials. So we learn from them. There are things that I will tell you that we've gone through in the last couple years that 10 years ago, I probably would have freaked out. But after going through some trials the last few years, I'm like, oh, that's okay. Whether it's economically, politically, whatever it is, I'm just like, wow, God, you walk me through these things and you're much more solid on the other side of that. The Bible tells us that the difference between foolish people and wise people is that foolish people always think they're wise and wise people are, know that this is foolishness in my life and they're not afraid to point it out. They're not afraid to say it, that I don't have all the answers. And this is why wise people readily admit that to those around them, that we don't have everything put together, but we're trusting God in the midst of it. I don't know if you have ever met somebody who just thinks that they know everything in the world and they have, apparently she does. <laughs> they just know everything in the world and they have the answer to everything. It's like, I know everything. And then all of a sudden they lose their job because they're a knucklehead or their marriage falls apart. I, I have this friend who thinks he knows everything. And the only times that he is humble is when he gets in trouble at work or in trouble at home. Then he's humble for about two weeks. And then he's right back to where he was before. And a lot of people don't want to hang out with people like that. Wise people know that when they don't have all the answers, it is way too easy to be foolish. And this is why trials bring wisdom. And James has kind of walked us through these different ways of that so far. And in verse 9, he's going to do that with the idea of being poor or being rich. Verse 9 of James chapter 1 says, let the low Holy brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. All the trials that we go through will change how we see the world around us. And we hopefully in the end through hard times will realize that we are not the ones in charge that we must surrender our lives to Christ himself. We must trust God more than we trust ourselves. Trials and problems help us to see the world around us much more clearly than we ever did before. Now, I've told you this before, uh, probably a few years ago, but there is this child researcher named Jerome Kagan. He actually died last year in May of 2020, but he, for 60 years, he did this research on children. He said that there are essentially three temperaments that most kids are born with, and you take this into your adulthood. He said the first one is called the anxious child, where the anxious temperament just wants to run away from everything. And then he says you have the aggressive child, and that's the one that says, let's get it before it gets me. 
They're always aggressive. And then he says you have the philosophical or the optimistic child. It's like, oh, it'll blow over. Everything's going to be great and wonderful. Now, what is the best temperament for your child to have or for you to have when you grow up? None of them. None of them, because none of them is actually best in the end. Anxious people typically do better in very dangerous situations where it's like, I got to run away or I'm going to really get it, and they run away. But in safe situations, they're so scared, their antenna's always up, and they don't connect well. In moderately dangerous trials or situations, the aggressive people will typically do the best. It's like, let's take the bull by the horns, let's figure this out. But in places where you're in a safe situation, they tend to like be a bull in a china closet, and they're running everything over. In safe situations, those optimistic, philosophical people tend to do the best because they're like, no, no, everything's going to be good. Oh, it's, it's going to be great. Maybe that's a great explanation for your kids now or maybe your relationship with your spouse or your friends. There you go. If you put a philosophical or aggressive person in a very dangerous situation, they are not going to do well. You put an anxious person in a safe situation, they're not going to do well. Wisdom is what God wants to teach us that in no matter what situation we come into, we don't just naturally respond with our temperament. We step back and say, God, what do you want me to do in the midst of this? And trials help us to do that. Kagan says there's no temperament that is inherently wise. Why? Because a wise person will respond appropriately. And most of the time, we don't. That's a long way for me to say none of us are born wise. James says that. Jesus says that. So there. Uh, We're all fools. We're just born that way. Interesting thing about Kagan is his views actually changed over the years. When he first started, he was a humanist, and he thought that you know every problem with a kid came about because their parents are just bad parents. And then, as life goes on, he's like, oh no, kids are born messed up. Parents are messed up. Ah, in Christianity, we call this original sin, so he's just coming around to our point of view. So what do you do? What do, what do parents do? What do you in your life when you recognize these things in yourself? Well, wisdom would say if you're an aggressive person, you need to realize that sometimes everyone else is not to blame and you're to blame. If you are, if you are a anxious person, you got to realize sometimes you're not to blame. And if you're an optimistic person, you just got to realize sometimes the world's a terrible place. <laughs> That's how it is. So what are trials then? So trials then become those situations where God puts us into it to help us to see the places where we are not wise. So we would begin to trust him. And God is a good father. He allows things or sends things into our lives that grow us up. I know if you're a parent, many times it's easier not to deal with one of your kids at one of their pain points because you don't want to deal with the meltdown. But our God is not like that. Our God takes us into the pain points in our lives so we'd see where we've been worshiping ourselves, looking after ourselves rather than looking to him. So we would see that and trust him. God moves us to a place so we'd live in wisdom. We would see who Christ is, and that would draw us closer to him to trust and live in his wisdom. Jonathan Edwards has this great sermon called The Excellency of Jesus Christ. It is based out of Revelation 5, verses 5 and 6, where it says this, Weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll with its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though he had been slain. Edwards writes this, There is in him, in Jesus, a conjunction of diverse excellencies, as otherwise would have seemed to us utterly incompatible in the same subject. In the person of Christ, do there meet infinite majesty and yet transcendent meekness, absolute self-sufficiency, it is the idea that he is a lion who's a lamb and a lamb who's a lion. What that is, is paradox. And that is where James goes in talking about trials today. Some people are naturally lambs and they don't know what to do in a situation where you have to be a lion. Some people are naturally lions and you don't know what to do in a situation where you have to be a lamb. And yet when we look at Jesus in him, Colossians 2, 3, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
Jesus is wise. That's why we look towards him. And the interesting thing is he was the one, as I said before, who suffered the most. And that almost always goes hand in hand with each other. Extreme suffering leads to great wisdom. And then we go through our trials and suffering, we are told that God is making us more and more into the image of who Christ is. It's all about what those trials are meant to bring. At the end of the section we look at today in verse 12, it will say, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. That's where we're going, right? But you take a step back and you look at each of these trials that James talks about. And the one today, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Again, James here is talking about this boasting in a way that goes to rich and poor, and it's all about trials and paradox. The Webster definition of paradox is this. It's a statement that is seemingly contradictory or opposed to common sense and yet is perhaps true. Here's a paradoxical statement. Giving is receiving. Paradoxical statement, right? Because you give, but you receive so much by how people receive that gift that you've given them. George Bernard Shaw said this, what a pity that youth must be wasted on the young. Paradox, right? Oscar Wilde says, I can resist anything but temptation. He is a lion who's lamb. He's a lamb who is a lion. It's this idea that let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. The scripture is full of paradoxes. The weak are strong, the empty are full, the slave are free, the cursed are blessed. Death brings life. And as we walk through these things, as we trust God, it begins to bring wisdom. So we would begin to live differently. G.K. Chesterton gave this definition of paradox. A paradox is a truth standing on its head shouting for attention. Uh, Kent Hughes says, paradox is a powerful vehicle for truth because it makes people think. But a lot of people don't want to think when you hit paradoxes. They want to step back away from that. But this is what James does. He centers out a lot of these trials in this idea of paradox. The first one, the brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. This is what's called the paradox of the rich poor. You are poor, but you are rich because what God has done and is doing in your life. And the other one is, but the one who is rich should take pride in his little position. That is the paradox of the poor rich. You have a lot, but you are spiritually poor. Kent Hughes points out these two things show exactly what the persecuted people that James is writing to are going through. There's all these things where they feel out of touch with the current cultural climate of the world. You ever feel like that? Okay, just checking if this was on or not. And so this is what he does. He's pointing these things out which fly in the face of all the culture that is around them. So let's start with this, the paradox of the rich poor. Now, the initial paradox is that, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. The NIV says the brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. Now the Greek text is interesting because what it says is the lowly brother, it just says the brother, the lowly. When it says boast in his exaltation, it actually means in his height. The high are low and in turn, the low are going to be high. It goes to what Jesus' Sermon on the Mount starts off where it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. If we go back to week one of the book of James, James is writing this book to these Jewish Christians who are in dire circumstances. They're losing everything they have because of their faith in Jesus Christ. It has pulled away their rights in that Roman world. The other Jew, Jews around them that weren't Christians were shunning them, and so they're left all alone. And because they were economically low, they were then low in the eyes of the world. And when you sit low for a very long time, you start to become low in your own eyes. For them, it's this idea that poverty produced this lowness of mind. 
And so James is trying to help them to see when you're in that position, paradoxically, you are in a wonderful place to see what God is actually doing when you look at that trial through the lens of what Christ is moving to in our lives. It's one of the reasons that James will use the word brother here because he is expressing to them, you are followers of Christ. You are part of God's family. You are a child of God. And the only place we come to the realization of how important that is to us is when we are in lowly circumstances, going through the trials. Romans chapter 8 verse 17 says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings in order that we may also share in His glory. The low are high. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He is reminding them of who they are in Christ. And that no matter what the world around them says, God is the one who has redeemed them and called them into his family. No matter how the world treats them, they are high. The low in terms of this world are actually high. But that highness only comes about through the lowness that we have gone through. Paradox. Do you see how that's working in there? It's not just about grasping or understanding this truth, but we must see a reversal is actually coming. There's a reversal in this where the higher made low and the lower made high, not in the sense of being better than somebody else, but about setting the right, setting right all the wrongs of the world. There's this old story. Don't stop me if you've heard it. Um, there's this old story. <laughs> And there is a, there's this dinner at this castle, and so there's a general that's there, and there's a chaplain that's there, and somehow the general gets seated next to the chaplain. He's not happy about that because he should be in a higher place. So the whole meal is just kind of like picking on this chaplain the entire time. And toward the end of the meal, he finally says, so, uh, chaplain, can you tell me something about heaven? And so the chaplain says, well, yes, I can, general. The first thing is I will tell you about heaven, general, is that in heaven you will not be a general. Low high. High, low. James is encouraging those who are going through the trials. Number one, God has not forgotten them. And secondly, it will not always be this way. And third, God has a purpose as they walk through this very difficult time in their life, so much so that he calls them high and to even take pride in that low position now. Not, oh, look how prideful I am. It's pride in what God is doing in that low place. The Bible actually calls this joyous boasting. It's boasting not at the expense of others, but what God is doing. Like in Romans chapter 1, verses 5 and 2, Paul says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That word rejoice there, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, that is the exact same word translated as boasting in the book of James. We rejoice in what God is doing. We rejoice in how God rescues and saves us. Romans 5.11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We hope in the glory of God. We rejoice in what God is doing in our lives. We boast and rejoice about the reconciliation we receive because of the gospel. And throughout the ages, people who truly follow Christ typically end up in places where they find themselves lowly. But that lowly place, brings about a humility to God's people. 
And so here it's not just the poor people are economically poor, but poverty has produced a lowness of spirit in the sense that as they walk through the trial, they become humble and they understand what God is actually doing. And it keeps them open to God's work in their life. Do you see that? It's kind of amazing. We shall be praying for more trials. <laughs> Jesus' first words, when he, when he goes into public ministry, Luke 4.18, he quotes Isaiah 61.1, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Who's the poor? The lowly. The lowly. You see Mary. Yeah, just got done with Christmas. You have Mary and God promises, you know, you're going to give birth to the Messiah, to Jesus. And what is her response? Luke uh, 148. He has been mindful of the humble estate of his servant. That is low and high, right? It is high. God is thinking about me, but I'm lowly. I'm from a, a podunk town that nobody even really cares to go to. And yet he is mindful of me, the low and the high. Guys, economic poverty can either incline us towards spiritual poverty, being self-focused on all of our issues, or it can lead us to great depths of seeing the world as God sees the world, broken and in need of a savior. See, James did not pity these poor brothers. He did not say, get around and commiserate with each other about how bad it is. What he tells them is you are actually spiritually advantaged because of the state that you are in. Look at that. Now, today, you know, we think in our world that loving God and blessing from God equals prosperity and happiness in our lives. I, I don't think we say that, but I think that's how we actually live. I'm not saying when God has given us a lot of nice things that God is not blessing us with wonderful things. But to blindly think that we only get good things by loving Jesus, or we only get prosperity, that's just foolish. Humble and lowly circumstances does not mean God's displeasure. Like last week when we talked about these doubts, the doubt doesn't mean all these things are just all God's displeasure. The doubts can actually lead us to places where we trust God more in the midst of our trials. And a living faith, it has its ups and downs. It really does. We are people who have not been perfected yet, but James wants his brothers and sisters to know that there's a deep truth that shouts. Christians are the rich poor, the low high. We are in an upside down world. So let's talk about quickly the poor rich, okay? Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, rejoice in that, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now, we tend to think the rich people in the world are those who have more than we do. We're going to get to a week in this series where I'm going to show you that I would argue with you that we in America are actually the rich. So just wait for it. It's coming. Not next week, but we'll get there. But we have a propensity to think that the rich are people who are overprivileged. Look at all these things they've got. But James and Jesus both say that they could actually be thought of as underprivileged, spiritually speaking. Like in our culture today, we are categorically taught to hate, dislike, disavow the other. If someone disagrees with you on masks or vaccines or COVID or, or politics, you just get rid of them. And we always just want to hate and argue with each other. I was talking to somebody this week who said, the really interesting thing now that you see is that the left and the right both have their boogeymen. On the left, everybody on the right is a racist and the people on the right, everybody on the left are pedophiles. And it's just crazy how we're looking at each other. What we're meant to understand is that Jesus teaches compassion and grace because the only way any of us were ever saved is the gospel. And that's what brings us back together. Jesus tells a parable to a rich man who came to him and he's very pious and devout. And at the end of that parable, Jesus tells him in Mark 10, go sell all you have and give it to the poor. 
The guy leaves very sad and dejected because he loved his wealth more than he loved his God. And then Jesus sums it up with this statement, Mark 10, uh, 25. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, there have been theological gymnastics all over this verse for ages now. I will tell you, that's not necessarily a comment on riches. That is a comment on us and our hearts and what we love. When we give ourselves to comfort and things, it is almost impossible for us to present ourselves before God as naked and humble. It's just impossible. The reality of the gospel comes as we understand our fallen state. And when we humbly understand what God did to rescue us, we have to be in that humble state to understand we needed rescue. We cannot save ourselves. And wealth in James's day has the same problems we still have today. Material wealth lures the possessor to focus their attention on things. I'm okay. I have all I need. I don't got to worry about anything. Wealth in itself, guys, is not bad. Some people make wealth into the boogeyman, and, and it's not. In Matthew 13, 22, Jesus does say, though, the deceitfulness of wealth strangles our spiritual life. He wants us to understand that. And greater than our possession, the greater our possessions, the more likely our delusion comes about in our lives. It's why Jesus says in uh, Matthew 6, 24, that we can't serve God and money. In 1 Timothy 6, 17, it says, Command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Why would he say that? Because it's true. Thank you. One person. Because it's true. It's what we do. He says, but put their hope in God who richly provides with everything for our enjoyment. We so often in our world want our wealth and our comfort and our stuff to be eternal, that our houses are going to go on forever. Guys, riches can be a spiritual liability rather than an asset. So James says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. James says it like that because contrary to popular opinion, trials and hardships and poverty will actually direct our hearts towards God more than riches ever will. And this is why he says you consider your trials, joy. Look what God does through the trials and towards the end of it. John Calvin, when he comments on these verses, says this. He tells them to glory in their lowness, their smallness, to restrain those lofty motives that swell out of prosperity. In other words, a Christian is to cultivate the understanding of what we call a poverty of spirit, a, a humbleness of how we first came to the gospel. This is where God met me. This is what my state of my life was in. And too often we move past that and we get very prideful about everything. And they keep saying, you got to come back. Remember why you were saved. Remember where you were and what Christ did to rescue you. That's that lowness of that. We make that our boast. This is what Christ did to save me. That, it's not about the lowness of poverty, but the humbleness that it brought. Kent Hughes writes this, It is a delusion to suppose that once we become Christians, we outgrow the initial salvific poverty of spirit. We, like Paul, must honestly and progressively see ourselves as the worst of sinners. That is not where you walk around, I'm the worst of sinners, I'm so bummed. No, we see ourselves in that humble state with the great grace, the exaltation that God has saved us and brought us to himself and brought us high. Truth standing on its head. Paradox. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. And then James put it together, what happens with riches. He says, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also with the rich man, so, so will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. You could probably understand this illustration really well because you live on the central coast of California. And at the end of every summer, in the fall, you get Santa Ana winds. 
and, those, and they're really hot and they come through and they scorch your shrubs. And you're like, what am I going to do? My wife is out there watering the trees three, four times a day to make sure the trees don't die. That's what he's saying that the riches are. It's like, oh, I'm hoping in these things. And what happens is it comes through and just scorches everything and they turn brown and they start to go away. That's how riches tend to affect us. Not that it can't happen to a poor man, but James says it is especially true in a rich person's case because they are more apt to think that their flowers are eternal, if you know what I mean. So James then says, blesses the man who remains steadfast under trial. What are those trials? Trials of poverty or trials of riches. And I know you're thinking, man, I would like the trial of, the, of riches. I would just like to try that once. <laughs> we should thank God much more when he puts us to the trials of the places where we end up being lowly. For when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Again, as we said, James is talking to believers, these Jewish Christians, these people of the diaspora. They have eternal life. And this has the connotation then of what true life in our lives now is actually supposed to be. An understanding of the hope of the gospel. That's why he finishes the book or finishes these verses talking about true eternal life. The wise are those who choose what is best for the long run. Foolish people look ahead a week, a month, a year, five years, ten years, and they're always looking at what is best going to benefit me during this time, where wise people fix their sight even beyond the grave, to the glory of God, where the high are made low and the lower are made high, not because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ has done. I would say in our lives, the trials that we go through, the things that hit us, they are all grace. And they do not feel like grace in the middle of them. They feel like you are being dragged to hell sometimes because it is so hard and so difficult. But as we walk through those and we trust Christ in the midst of those things, we realize the wisdom that it brings. And on the backside, we say, that is wisdom and that was grace. This is what God has brought into my life because of these things I've gone through. And they could be things that God has brought into your life. There could be decisions that you have made that have brought horrible things into your life, but God will still, in the end, use all of those things for His glory and our good. And this is what the gospel pushes us to understand, that it is not how we go through these trials that makes God love us. It is that God has loved us before those trials ever hit us, and He has called us to Himself in the person of Jesus Christ. I'm going to invite the band to come up. And as they do, I'm going to invite you, if you'd like to, to take communion this morning because communion is the reminder of what Christ did to save us in the gospel. That he has taken us in our lowly places and in our high places. And he has moved us to be a people who will come and know and walk with him. He is the one who draws us to himself. And that's why we take communion. And again, we understand communion is not like we used to do it. If you've been here before, it's, there is a, a single serve cup in there and the cracker is not great and the juice is purple. And it's, it's just what it is. You know, we, we, we understand it's different right now. But the point of communion is to bring us back to a place that we remember the gospel and whatever state we find ourselves in right now, low or high, God is the one who is calling us back to himself. So we'd all be a people who understand our great salvation is found in him. We don't have anything to lord over anybody else because we are all only saved by the grace of the gospel. And so we thank God for whatever position we find ourselves in at the moment as we trust him, as we walk through it to the other side with him. And understand it is grace. That God does not leave us. He does not forsake us. He walks with us through every single bit of it because he is good.
If you need prayer, maybe you're going through something today and you're just like, I don't know what to do with all this. Grab Sarah at the Welcome Center. She will connect you with one of us, and we would love to be able to pray with you today. Uh, We also give. uh, God has given so much to us, so giving is just part of our worship. We don't pass a plate at Element. There's offering boxes next to all the doors, or you can give online, but we don't pass a plate because it's always meant to be a response to what God has done, and that's what we always want to do, people who respond to the goodness of God. And I encourage you to grab the sermon notes, Take those questions in there, walk through those with your family or friends or your gospel community this week, and just kind of talk about what those things mean. Low, high, high, low. What is your trial? How is God walking with you through these things? When do you feel all alone in the midst of your trial? And how do you look to what Christ has done first for you to rescue in that? And come alongside one another. Because one of the great gifts that God gives us is one another. To come alongside and walk through all the trials we go through. That is also a grace. It is a grace. And we should not be a people who give up walking with one another through all of these things. Just like we talked about in the baby dedication. We are a people who love and worship Christ as a corporate body so that people would know and little kids would grow up to understand what that is supposed to look like through the highs and the lows and the good and the bad and the hard times and the good times. That we are a people whose lives are first focused on Christ. Once, much prayer with me. Father, this morning we ask that you would take us as a people to understand First off, your majesty and your grace of coming to save us. And that our salvation has nothing to do with what we've done. As a matter of fact, we are those who tend to run from your grace more than embrace it. And yet you, in your kindness and your mercy, are the one who draws to you and you bring us back. And so I ask that we would hear you, that we would trust you. And that we would come to a place where we understand the trials and the adversity and the hardships that we have gone through can actually be seen as grace, can actually be seen as you moving us to surrender more of our lives to you to trust you in the midst of those hard places. To see and understand your wisdom as greater than our wisdom. And that our lives will be those who are bound up by how you abound us in you. And then teach us how to live out our lives in this world in a way that reflect that goodness. That we don't just make our salvation personal, but we live it out in a way that it touches the entire world around us so everyone would know how good you are, because it is not just to stay in our own little life. We take all the trials and all the pain that we have gone through, and we then reach into others' lives and love them as you you have loved us through our trials. Teach us to understand low, high, your goodness through all of it. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen. I ask Michael to close the curtains as he does. I just want to give you guys a few moments with a little bit less distractions around you and just start asking those questions of God and, and where you are right now. Maybe the trials that you have been through or are you low or are you high right now? Do you actually see your need for the goodness and the grace of God in these moments? Or do you think you have it all put together? If you think you have it all put together, this is a great time to say, God, show me where I don't have it put together. (laughs) I need to see. 
I need your wisdom. And if you're in a place today where you feel like your life is just falling apart, ask God to show you his grace to you today. How he is bringing you to understand better wisdom, better trust in, and more trust in who he is, the grace that has rescued us and that you may feel low, but you are high because God has not forgotten about you. Then come and take communion, sing a couple songs with us, worship who God is. And then we'll head out into this world, hopefully as renewed people, understanding God's grace given to us.